Are they prospects or suspects? We'll talk about the September call-ups with BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon next on Baseball HQ Radio. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a foul. Left field. Way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are World Series champions. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of August 25th. It's show number 32 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. And in addition to BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon, we'll have our regular contributors from the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about how Mitt Romney used the Market Pulse trading strategy. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon comes back to look at St. Louis right-handed pitching prospect Michael Waka. And in his Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about 2013 expectations for Mike Trout. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Roger Clemens is on the comeback trail. We gotta talk some baseball. Yeah, Roger Clemens is going to pitch for the Independent League Sugarland Skeeters this weekend. And the rumors are he wants to pitch for the Houston Astros. Move on over, Satchel Page. It's time for the first inning of our show. Our League Watch News reports Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League. And leading off, it's the National League report. And our old friend, the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, it's Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Let's start with a couple of uh, potential future star pitchers who faced off against each other last week, uh, or earlier this week, depending on Wednesday night, we'll call it that. Uh, Jacob Turner of the Miami Marlins took on Tyler Skaggs of the Arizona Diamondbacks. And uh, what do we think about these two guys as prospects, and what did we think about the game? You know, these are, these are, guys, these are guys who've uh, uh, both been, had been touted a lot in terms of their potential uh, and Let's start. Look at Turner first, and, and you know Turner pitched last year 13 innings for the Tigers uh, before getting traded to uh, to Miami. 8.53 ERA, uh, and the the biggest problem was a he uh, uh, struggled with his dom. His dominance was not nearly what it had been in the minors. Um, so 4.57 xERA. So ERA was high, but uh, but you know he still pitched fairly well. Came back this season, pitched three games in Detroit. Uh, did not pitch especially well. Uh, similar kinds of things. His control was not uh, not as good as it was a year ago. A command ratio of only 1.7. Uh, 
Uh, really pitched okay against uh, against uh, the other night against uh, Arizona, but uh, you know here's a guy who's 21 years old, uh, certainly has a bright future ahead of him, but is, is still getting his sea legs under him and and is struggling a bit. So uh, they say he's probably going to remain in the rotation the rest of the year. Uh, which I guess is a good thing, but not somebody I think I would pounce on if he's sitting on your waiver wire. Well, it looks like it was a 3-2 final, and they, they both actually pitched fairly well. Turner went six innings, gave up three runs. That's what they call a quality start. Uh, four hits and no walks, which has to be kind of a thumbs-up kind of performance. Five strikeouts. In the short run, because we we are now in the short run officially going it down the stretch for fantasy purposes, uh, Jacob Turner could be the kind of guy maybe you take a flyer on? Maybe so. You know, you might catch lightning in a bottle going down the stretch with him. He'll be facing teams for the first time, uh, and that's always a good thing, especially with a guy who's got pretty good stuff. So, uh, you know, the sort of thing, if you're if you're trying to catch lightning in a bottle down the stretch, he might give give you that, yeah. And in keeper leagues, of course, he has a little added value. Skaggs got the win despite probably not pitching quite as well. As six and two-thirds, he gave up two earned runs, which is nice, but eight base runners, including five walks, which was more than he struck out. Uh, how serious a concern is it when a guy does that, even in one start? You know, that that's scary, I think. I mean, here's a guy who's had very good control uh, through the minors and, and uh, suddenly gets to the majors and is walking a lot of people. And, and, and that's a common thing that we see. You know, we see players coming up from the minor leagues who've had very good control, and they get to the majors, and they struggle. Uh, and I think there, there are several things going on there. I, uh, the, the umpires may be a little tighter on the strike zone. Uh, the hitters are probably a lot more selective. Uh, and so they're, you know, they, these, they've got to adjust to these things. But uh, major league hitters are different than minor league hitters. They've got a lot more experience, uh, and they're tougher. That's why they're in the major leagues. So I think there's concern when you've got a guy who comes up and has, has struggled with his control in his first couple of starts. Agreed. And uh, in case you're thinking about Jacob Turner, one other thing you got to keep in mind is that the uh, Marlins have a fairly tough schedule coming down the stretch. Uh, they have the Dodgers, which is not as bad as it might be, but the Nationals have been playing well. They have a bunch of games against them and Philadelphia. One uh, little series against Cincinnati, who can really bang the ball. Um, Atlanta's in the race, and they, they've been hitting well. So, you know, it could be that Jacob Turner in Miami, presuming he stays in the rotation and, and gets to start every sixth day, which is what I read somewhere, could uh, find himself facing some pretty formidable lineups. Yeah, that's entirely possible, and that, of course, makes a difference. In Colorado, young Tyler Colvin is going to be getting some additional playing time with Michael Kadire on the DL, Nick. Uh, yeah, very definitely. I mean, it looked like Tyler Colvin was was kind of the odd man out with Kadire coming back from the DL and Eric Young. Uh, Eric Young uh, playing very well, and looked like uh, Colvin might have to go to the bench for a bit. But Colvin has had an outstanding season. I mean, here's a guy in, just at 300 at bats, 14 homers, 52 RBIs, 294 BA. Uh, over the last month, he's at 325. Um, so everything looks good for Tyler Colvin. I mean, an excellent uh, a power index of 166. Um, the only thing that's a little bit suspicious is a, a high hit rate, 36% hit rate, uh, and a batting eye that doesn't quite uh, equate to that. So got to be careful about his, his batting average. XBA is 274, and that can come down. But here's a guy who could really be helpful down the stretch. He has some power. He has a little bit of speed. Uh, probably not going to kill you in terms of batting average. And looks now with Kadire uh, probably out for the year like he could play every day. I agree, Nick, and and it's the power-speed combination that's the most interesting. He's 14-7 and seven so far this year. With about a six to go, you could be looking at maybe three homers and three or four bags as we uh, head down the, to the wire. The batting average, as you mentioned, the expected batting average is 20 points under his real batting average for good reason. 
But in the short run, sometimes guys can sustain a, a higher batting average. It's very, it's extremely variable at this point. It, it really is, and at this point in time, of course, uh, that that uh, that differential is probably not going to kill you in terms of your team batting average overall. Right, because of the uh, enormous number of at bats you probably have, pretty hard for a guy to move your batting average unless he hits like oh ninety or or six hundred. Right. Also in Colorado, Dexter Fowler was somebody that we looked at at the start of the year and said, uh, this is a guy who's worth a flyer. He's been building an, a decent little foundation for a career. And this year, he's he's really delivered a 300 batting average. He's uh, double digits in homers and stolen bases. Uh, RBI's uh, 44 is not that great, but he's at the top of the order for the most part. He's got 67 runs, which is pretty good. And it looks like uh, there's going to be some extra playing time for Dexter Fowler as well as Tyler Colvin because Helton is also going on the DL again. Right, very definitely. So, you know... Uh, uh... Dexter Fowler looks as though he's had a real breakout season, but you've got to look more closely at that. I mean, we expected Dexter Fowler to have a speed breakout. We predicted a uh, an upside of 15 home runs and 50 stolen bases, but he's got to get the home runs. It uh, looks like he's got 12 now. A couple of more will give him 14, 15, so that's close. But he's only got 12 stolen bases and uh, simply has not been uh, not been running as much. They've not let him run. A, a stolen base opportunity index of only 12%. Uh, so they've kind of given him a, a semi-red light. And the other real warning sign with Dexter Fowler that tells you this is not the breakout we were we were hoping for, expected batting average, 258. Uh, so that 307, the 307 BA is almost 50 points higher than his expected batting average. And uh, so I guess what we're having to say at this point is uh, Dexter Fowler's had a great year, but it's not the breakout that we were looking for. And... You know, sometimes, Nick, I, I trust the BaseballHQ.com metrics, but I'm a little leery of this expected batting average for a player with a 13% walk rate. He's got a well above average power and way above average speed. And sometimes guys like that, he's got a 27% line drive rate as well. He's hitting it on the ground 40% of the time, more or less. And if you've got decent power, that is, if you're hitting the ball hard on the ground and you can run, sometimes you're going to sneak a few extra hits than the uh, formulas expect. Well, that's true, although I think a 39% hit rate for the season is pretty high. It is. Uh, you know, even with a good, really good hitter, you'd expect it to drop down to 35, 36, and, and perhaps even lower. And if, speaking of his stolen base opportunity rate, uh, a little while ago I did a batting buyer's guide at BaseballHQ.com that looked at all the teams sorted by sorted by a new metric that we called the stolen base uh, index, which was opportunities and uh, success rate, and Colorado was right around the league average, but not a, not a real big running team. So maybe that team philosophy uh, is going to affect a guy like Fowler, whereas a team like Miami or San Diego, which runs like crazy, might have given him quite a few more running opportunities. That's true. And the other thing that, that's affecting that is they move Fowler down in the batting order. He's not the leadoff hitter. Eric Young has been the leadoff hitter. Fowler's been hitting around third in the batting order, which, of course, uh, cuts into those stolen base opportunities. Should give him some RBI shots. And now Young is uh, questionable for the next uh, couple of weeks anyway. Maybe uh, maybe Dexter Fowler gets a few opportunities. But you know what, Nick? I don't think I'd bet on it. No, I don't think I would either. I mean, we've got a season a season's worth of stats here with the current manager uh, that say that they, they're not going to let him run a lot. Well, they're not going to let anybody run a lot, including him. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, you're very welcome, Patrick. And we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. All righty. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League here at Baseball HQ Radio. 
Now let's move to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. Patrick, it's been a shocking PED-filled news week all around the sports world this week. Well, especially in the Bay Area. Of course, Melky Carrera a little while ago, and now Bartolo Colon of the Oakland A's is gone for 50 games, opening a spot in the rotation. What about Brett Anderson? Brett Anderson is certainly a very highly skilled pitcher uh, at a very young age. Hard to believe he's only 24 years old and a very successful season back in 2009 as a 21-year-old, really rocked himself and set himself on the world here. Uh, but he struggled with injuries. He hasn't had a real complete season since then, and therefore he's hard to predict. But certainly looked very good his first start out. When you look at his skills historically, excellent command, which is strikeout-to-walk ratio. Not simply a strikeout pitcher. He shows good control, and he deuces a lot of ground balls. Uh, 57% ground ball rate in 2011 and 13 starts. 55% in 2010. So he's a pitcher that's got good enough strikeout ability, striking out at least six batters for nine innings, matched with good control and the ability to keep the ball on the ground. His fly ball rate was 34% at its highest in 2009 and went down each of the past few seasons as he did struggle with injuries. Anderson also has the ability to strand runners. We don't know if that's a proven skill yet, but his strand rate was as high as 77% in 2010. We look at his expected ERAs. They've actually come down from 2010, 2011, had a downward trend, even though his actual ERA rose from 280 to 4. And that's because of a higher hit rate, 31% in 2011, and a much higher strand rate in 2010 of 77%, driving his actual ERA nearly a run below his expected ERA. So here's a pitcher that in 2011 had a 3.42 expected ERA, showed all the skills you would like to see, from a young hurler, 2.4 strikeout-to-walk ratio, 57% ground ball rate. So he controlled the strike zone. The only question is, is he healthy to duplicate those skills again? And if so, he'd be a great add here at the end of your season for your stretch run. Well, of course, Anderson's relatively high strand rate could be explained at least in part by his high ground ball rate. A lot of double plays sometimes can really help that strand rate along. Let's uh, talk about Texas pitcher Hugh Darvish at the start of the year. A lot of people thought this guy might be a Cy Young contender. Who knew? But a lot of observers, including those of us at BaseballHQ.com, said, let's wait till he gets a belly full of that Texas heat in the summertime. And sure enough, since the All-Star break, Hugh Darvish has been not so great. Darvish's outings really depend on his control rate. Uh, he's walking nearly five batters per nine innings. And if you look at the second half, 5.2 walks per nine innings. He's actually striking out more batters, 11.4 dominance. So we see the amazing potential in Darvish's skills. But so far, his horrible walk rate has hidden that, along with a very high 35% hit rate in the second half and a very low 58% strand rate. His actual ERA is about 623, but his expected ERA is 366, two and a half full runs lower. So what we're seeing here is misfortune with Darvish. Uh, he's struggling. When you walk a lot of guys, that elevated hit rate or a lower strand rate is really going to come back and bite you in your actual ERA and make you seem like a much worse pitcher than you really are. Darvish has amazing skills. His PQS dominance disaster ratings are 65% to 4%. So he's not really blowing up that often. He has plenty of dominant starts. This is the kind of skills you want to see on a pitcher who's going to be emerging probably next year. He's got all the stuff. He's just having a real rough second half of the 623 ERA. So the question, Matt, is can he bring it back this year? We're getting to small sample sizes now, so we can't say yes, he will. But certainly, he has the skills. 
He just has to put the ball over the plate and let the law of large numbers average itself out. He's not a great pitcher, but he's a solid pitcher with an ERA under four uh, in that difficult ballpark to pitch in. And Arlington with a great offense behind him to give him wins. Well, Matt, you know the Baseball HQ mantra as well as I do. We always say to make sure to draft skills and not roles, and we have a tremendous example of that in Toronto where Casey Jansen was on the outside looking in at the start of the year because Sergio Santos had arrived via trade to become the closer. He went down with an injury. They turned to Casey Jansen, who's always had these solid skills, and look at him now. He's got uh, 16 saves and uh, just signed a, a contract extension. Really, his story is the opposite of Darvish, much better control each of the past four seasons. He struck out three batters for nine innings back in 2009, down to 1.3 in 2012. That's only seven walks in the entire year. He's also increased his dominance, striking out more batters each year to averaging more than a strikeout per inning in 2012, and that's given him a command ratio of 6.9, which is elite territory. He's done this despite a very high 13% home run per fly ball rate, so that's very unusual. He's also been helped by a 23% hit rate, very low. This kept his ERA down around 227 level, near the same area he experienced in 2011. His expected ERA should be higher than that as that hit rate normalizes, but overall, Jansen has great skills, shows great control of the plate, and has always had a ground ball tendency more than a fly ball tendency, so that also helps as well. Having less fly balls makes that higher home run for fly ball rate uh, less effective because there's not as many balls in the air. So overall, Jansen certainly should keep this up as a closer. It's going to be difficult for Santos to get his job back next year because Jansen certainly has displayed excellent skills with a base performance value of 150. Matt, in Kansas City, they don't have a whole lot to cheer about again this year, but one bright spot might be the catcher, Salvador Perez. Missed the start of the year with an injury. It kept him out for quite a while. He's now back. He's got 165 at-bats, and he's got eight home runs in that time. What do you think of Salvador Perez? Salvador Perez is a little bit of an anomaly for a lot of statistics because he's a very aggressive hitter, only a 4% walk rate. So we would argue this would be difficult to maintain his batting average uh, of 302 so far in 2012. But when you look beneath those stats, we see a 91% contact rate, which is elite territory, and a 24% line drive rate. We look at his past history, and with his major league equivalents, he had a 29% line drive rate in 2011. So this guy has the ability to put the bat on the ball and hit it hard. It's interesting, he has a very low fly ball rate, only 28%, and a very high power index of 121. This is unusual because normally home run hitters have a very high fly ball rate, but with Perez having a high home run per fly ball rate of 21%, he's been able to put the ball out of the park plenty of times, eight homers in about 150 at-bats. So Perez is hitting the ball with a 300 average. His skills say he can fully support that with his current level of power and his great contact rate. His expected batting average is 325, actually. And the power that we see is real uh, if he can maintain that home run per fly ball rate. At this point, he's not hitting a lot of fly balls, but we know young catchers often don't. And as they get more and more experience, uh, they tend to show more power later in their careers as they approach 30 as opposed to earlier in their career. So with Perez already showing these power skills along with the elite contact, uh, there's a lot to like with Salvador Perez going forward in the future as an excellent catcher. Well, we said the same thing about Joe Maurer a couple of years ago, and uh, while he maintained the batting average, the power pretty much disappeared. What's going on with Joe Maurer? Joe Maurer 
is still an excellent hitter. His expected batting average is 291, but far below his 321 current batting average. Here we see a player whose contact rate is declining. Uh, is down to 85%. It's on a three-year decline for Maurer. Still an excellent hitter. He's gotten more patient at the plate with a 14% walk rate. He's increased his performance against left-handed pitchers back over 300 there. But Maurer, since his knee injury, has really lost his power and really doesn't lift the ball much in target field. He only has 20% fly ball rate in 2012, and that's on a four-year decline and very similar to the 22% fly ball rate he displayed in 2011. He has an excellent line drive rate, at currently at 25%, that results in a high batting average, but his ground ball rate is 55%. When you don't have good speed, having a high ground ball rate is not a good thing. Uh, Maurer, certainly after two knee surgeries, is not going to set the world on fire speed-wise. His speed score is only 78. So here's an excellent hitter for average, uh, probably a 300 hitter going forward, but with very little power. Don't expect that power to come back. The 28 homers he showed in 2009 are not going to come back as a result of a change in ballpark and the fact that his hitting outlook has obviously changed as he's just trying to put the ball in play and not lifting the ball as he had in the past. So don't expect Maurer to be a power source in the future. Well, we can expect, or we thought we could, expect Jason Kipnis, a fine young second baseman in Cleveland, to be a power source, and he certainly lived up to that idea in the first half. Uh, I remember in our round table discussion at the break that uh, more than a couple of us voted for Jason Kipnis as the most valuable fantasy player of the first half, but since that time, he's really fallen off. Well, struggles from a young player are not unusual, Patrick, and Kipnis is certainly no exception. We often talk about that a guy displays skills, he may regress before he takes the next step forward, and sometimes regress significantly. It's not a linear relationship where a player gets a little bit better each year. He's going to go through his struggles, learn from those struggles, and come back even better than before. In the second half of 2012, he's only hit about 211, but his expected batting average is 243. That's because he has a very low 25% hit rate. He also is putting the ball on the ground a lot more, just like we talked about with Joe Maurer, 52% ground ball rate. Now, the difference is that Kipnis has decent speed, uh, but Kipnis was known for his power in the first half. He only has one home run in the second half here because his fly ball rate has fallen to 28%. That's a result partially of his home run per fly ball rate going from 13% to 3%. We mentioned his speed earlier as he led the major leagues with stolen bases much of the first half. But his speed score is down to 76 in the second half. He's not getting on base very much to get the opportunities. He's still stealing about the same amount of time, but only has four stolen bases in the second half versus 19 in the first half because he's just not getting on base enough to have the opportunity to steal. He still has great plate patience, and that has increased in the second half as his walk rate went from 8% to 14%. And he still shows nice uh, skill at the plate with an 82% contact rate that he's pretty much maintained throughout the season. Uh, I like Kipnis long-term here. Uh, the steep drop in power is a concern, and hitting a lot more balls on the ground are going to limit his home run potential. But Kipnis is only 25. He's going through his first full season, and these are the kinds of difficulties we have learning the game, adjusting to the major leagues, and the reason we always tell you to be careful with young players, no matter how, many, how good they might seem in the beginning, uh, it's not a set thing. You're much better with a proven player than taking a chance on a young player who's going to have these the streakiness and have these deep valleys as they adjust to the major league game. And finally, Matt, the uh, A's made a bit of a move. They acquired shortstop Stephen Drew from the Diamondbacks. Drew, of course, coming off a very, very bad ankle injury. Uh, what do you think of this deal from the A's point of view? He only has two home runs and 135 at-bats. He was always thought of as a shortstop who may 
have emerging powers. Um, the interesting thing with him is he has only a 24% hit rate and a career-worst 74% contact rate. So he's not putting the ball in play very much, and when he does, he's getting unlucky with it, and that's causing a 192 batting average. We would expect that to go up, certainly, um, because he has a very nice line drive stroke, and he has a history of consistent performance. It's just a matter of Drew finding his stroke. Whether that happens in September or not, no one can predict with that small of a sample size. But we know that Drew does own skills, and he's young enough to reclaim those skills. We just don't know when they're going to emerge again. He also has a very low percentage of fly balls uh, going for home runs, and it's not going to be helped by his new park. Uh, the Oakland Coliseum reduces left-handed homers by 27% versus the very friendly confines at uh, Bank One Ballpark there in Arizona. So don't expect any more power from Drew, but his line drive stroke would play well in that park, um, and we expect him as he adjusts to the new league. It's kind of a, bit of a long shot. I wouldn't expect him to come through in September. Uh, sometimes, though, you have to take those chances to try to catch your opponent, and uh, that's what you have to hope with Drew, that you catch lightning in a bottle, that a change of scenery. He obviously went through a lot of emotional difficulties in Arizona from the comments from the front office there. He wasn't liked. He wasn't wanted there. So this is his chance to show them they were wrong. Uh, getting a new start sometimes can breathe new life into somebody, and that's what you really have to hope for if you acquire Stephen Drew. And, Matt, your Market Pulse commentary will come up in just a few minutes on the show. Yes, Patrick, our Market Pulse this week is going to talk about the strategy of choosing Paul Ryan as the vice presidential candidate and how it relates to your fantasy baseball league, the kind of analysis you need to do to make that last-minute run here down the stretch. All right, Matt, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week. Look forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon is next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Why to attend First Pitch Arizona? Reason number 17. You're one of us. Initially, I was really worried. I don't know if I'm going to fit in. I don't know any of the guys personally. You also get a chance to rub elbows with people who are fantasy players just like yourself that are just really dedicated to the game. And a lot of people will tell you that have tended, they've, they've developed friendships. I would say I probably enjoy the camaraderie with the, the fellows that I've gotten to become very good friends with over time. You'll fit right in. We're just a bunch of guys and a few girls who love to watch and talk baseball. We're in our 20s and 50s and, yes, even 80s. And we wear Marlins caps and Cubs T-shirts and Angels jerseys. We'll even let you in if you're a Yankees fan. It's as if you're, you're, you're hanging out with old friends, even if you've never met any of these guys. First pitch, Arizona, November 2nd to 4th at the Double Tree Suites Hotel in Phoenix. Go to BaseballHQ.com slash seminars slash Arizona for more information and to register. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's a pleasure now to be joined by a voice that will be familiar to longtime Baseball HQ Radio listeners. It's BaseballHQ.com minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Rob, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, it's great to have you, Rob. Always good to talk about the prospects, and really no better time uh, than coming up to the end of August because call-ups will be coming along any minute now, and we'll talk about that in a second. But before we do that, uh, let me talk to you about something Ron Chandler's been talking about in his last couple of Master Notes commentaries, which is the long-shot bet that top draft picks return enough value to be useful to fantasy owners soon enough to be valuable to fantasy owners. Do you have an idea how many batters or pitchers 
pan out in that way and have productive careers at the major league level early enough to benefit their fantasy owners? Well, you know, it is, it is definitely somewhat of a crapshoot, you know, especially depending on how, how long you can keep some of the players. You know, you think about somebody like Alex Gordon, who took, you know, not only yeah, probably, what, four years at the major league level before he really was productive and worth having on your roster. Um, you know, and certainly in our forum, HQ forum, you know, we do see lots of questions about, you know, how long do I, do I hold on to this guy before he really is going to start producing results? And so it, it, it really is. I think somewhat of a crapshoot. You know, it's it's probably not as much of a crapshoot as as I think people think it is. Um, you know, if you look at we we did a study in the Forecaster and it asked in the minor league baseball analysts a couple of years ago. I think it was in 2006, where we looked at elite level major league players and and where they came from. And half of those players, 50 percent of those players, were drafted in the first, second, or third round, and another 25 percent were international free agents. And so, you know, if you kind of flip it on its head and say where are the elite-level players going to come from, rather than is this first-round draft pick going to be an elite-level player, looking at where do those elite-level players come from. And they did come from the first, second, and third rounds primarily. So the idea that you know you get somebody like a Mike Piazza in the 46th round or whatever, yeah, that does happen, but it doesn't happen quite as often as, a, as I think people think it, it does. So you really kind of, with my only players, it really is a long shot. You know, the, there's a very high rate of failure, especially with pitching prospects. But if you're looking for a younger, elite-level player, it is going to come from a guy who was taken in the, probably in the first round. Yeah, it seems like, in a way, that's when you said turning it on its head is a way of looking at it. It does seem to tr- turn it on its head because to say that most elite players come from the early rounds of the draft is not the same thing as saying most early guys in the draft become elite players. Exactly, and, and, that, and that's the frustrating thing. You know, you get you get those first-round draft picks, and you think, okay, that's, that's where I want to focus, but the failure rate is really high there still. But it, it's, it's, high, it's less high there than it is later in the draft. And so if you're looking, to, especially if you're playing in a dynasty league, like I, I play in a, a dynasty league, you know, the, that's, where that's where your productive prospects are going to come from. It's just that it's going to take a really long time for some of those guys to pan out. Yeah, when Ron was talking about it in his commentaries, he was talking about guys who are already drafted and have made it onto top 100 prospect lists. And in some cases, that means they've been in the minors for several years and have established some, some level of performance at, at AA or AAA in particular. And even at that, I think the, uh, the prospect of getting the guy onto your roster the year you draft him in your ultra draft or in your league's farm draft you have a uh, in most formats you have a limited amount of time to hang on to him once he once he hits the major leagues and even at that even if you're allowed to wait the 3 or 4 years while he makes his way through the minors then he finally hits the major leagues then you have usually 3 years to cash in and and Ron's position is and I'm doing some research now that seems to seems to support this is that even once the guy hits the major leagues his first 3 years are usually not worth the five bucks a year that it costs you in salary or the equivalent in, a, in draft slots. No, I would, I would totally agree. I mean, in fact, I mean, I've been in that situation where you wait for the guy to get to the major leagues and then he finally gets there and he's a total drag on your team and he's, he's going to cost you a chance of, you know, finishing in the money. So, uh, you know, it, it, I, I think, you know, in my own leagues, the, the way I look at prospects is they're great to have as trade bait. <laughs> You know, and so thinking of them that right. way, not necessarily that they're going to be productive on your team, but you might be able to trade them for something that's productive for your team. Um, you know, that's, that might be a better way to look at it. But, you know, every once in a while you're going to get a Mike Trout um, who, you know, 
who, who then convinces everybody else for the next you know five years that they have to have that next can't miss prospect. And you know what? The Mike Trout's don't come around all that often. No, they don't. A once in a decade, once in a generation type of player who really does keep the fires burning in in fantasy owners to say, "I want the next Mike Trout," even though chances are there isn't going to be one. I think Ron Shander will be shocking some folks this week with his prediction for Mike Trout in 2013. And I wonder if we might be better off adopting the George Allen approach. You might be too young to remember. George Allen ran the Redskins for many years and very famously traded away even his top draft picks to get veteran players because he believed that even if he could draft a guy with a higher ceiling than an established veteran, the veteran had already proved what he could do and had done so at the pro level, whereas the draft choice was something of a pig in a poke. Maybe fantasy owners would be better off saying, yeah, this pick could turn out to be Mike Trout and I'll be sad, but there's a way better chance he won't turn out to be Mike Trout. And really, you're better off getting a $5 Ryan Dowman than a $7 Ben Zobrist. Yeah, no, and I think especially if, you, if, you, if you're in a league where you can keep a player for, for a long term, that, that's a little bit different. But if, you're, if you have to have you know, productive results in, in like a year or two or three window, I, I think more often than not, you, that's a safer play is to is to trade those prospects for guys that you know are going to be productive and help you you know win in, in the short term. Um, and even if every once in a while you miss out on somebody and the, you know the, the the player ends up being way more productive than the guy you traded for, I think the odds are going to be in your favor. Uh, if you play it that way. Yeah, for sure. And in the meantime, especially if the, if your rules, as most leagues do, don't allow you to just carry the guy indefinitely but require you to have him on your active roster, as you said earlier, he can really be killing you. He can be taking a lot of offers. He could be a pitcher who's ringing up that 5.5 ERA in, in you know 90 innings or something like that. Not only is he not helping you, he can actively hurt you. Yeah, well, especially if, you're on, especially if the prospect's on a team that's out of it and they're they're going to let the guy learn on the job, and so they're putting up not only a five, but maybe a six or a seven ERA, and they're going out there every every four or five days, and, and you know giving up five or six runs. Uh, that can really kill you. Absolutely, it's Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Rob Gordon, the minor league expert at BaseballHQ.com, and. Rob, we mentioned at the outset that we are rapidly approaching the September call-ups period, which is a time when a lot of us fantasy owners get to watch the uh, young players audition. And let's start with uh, the players that you see getting called up, maybe getting some decent playing time, and maybe being valuable to fantasy owners. Let's start with some uh, American League batters. Who do you like? Uh, I really like Christian Colon, uh, a second-base shortstop player from, from Kansas City. He was the fourth overall pick in 2010. And, you know, I think people have been somewhat disappointed in his results so far, but he is still a really good player. He's not going to be the kind of guy that's going to hit for a lot of power. Um, he's got, what, six home runs this year. So, um, you know, he, he's not going to be that kind of player, but he is a good defender, so he'll get a chance to play. Probably either, he'll probably see some time at second base and shortstop. Certainly Kansas City, um, you know, is retooling once again. And so I, I think there's going to be a chance for him to see some uh, some action both at second base and shortstop. And he he's a guy that can really – put the ball in play on a regular basis and should put up solid batting average, which, you know, for, for a middle infielder is a, a, a nice thing to have. Um, another guy, Grant Green from, from Oakland, this guy's a really good hitter. A couple years ago he hit, um, you know, had a real nice year. He's not been quite as dynamic this year, but, you know, he's got 23 doubles, 13 home runs, uh, steals, you know, 15 bases. Uh, he's seen some time both at uh, second base, third base, and also in center field. He was drafted as a shortstop, but they converted him to center field. Uh, doesn't quite have the range for for shortstop, but could play at second base, third base, and and also in the outfield. So, you know, and Oakland's willing to kind of give those guys uh, looks and and to see where they fit in. Um, certainly, Jamal Weeks hasn't uh, 
hasn't been doing very well this year, so he might slot in and see some starts at the second base. Rob, when you're talking about Christian Colon playing some second base, does this mean that the Royals might have given up on Johnny Giovatella already? Well, yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. I think Colon's probably got a little bit more offensive upside. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that, I think they really, you know, long term, I think he's I think he's better. He's got much better plate discipline, and he offers a, you know that nice speed combination and batting average. So, I don't know if they've given up on him yet, but but certainly, I think Colon's probably got more upside long term. And when uh, you mentioned Grant Green in Oakland possibly getting some playing time at the expense of Jamile Weeks or somebody else, does the fact that Oakland is still in contention for a wild-card spot alter that uh, projection? Any? Are they maybe a little less willing to go with, a, forgive the expression, a green player like Grant Green? Yeah, uh, although Green's not super young, so I think you know he's, what, 24. So I think, that, yeah, that, that's always a possibility if you're going to go with the state and true, you know, the more experienced player. Um, and not and not throwing a guy who's uh, who's inexperienced. But on the other hand, if a, if a guy's struggling, you know, and you feel like Green's going to going to provide some offense, um, and I think Oakland in particular is willing to give those guys chances. Um, I don't think he'll I don't think he'll be a full time player, um, but I think he could I think he could see you know a couple starts a week or maybe even three or four starts a week. Also in Kansas City, you, of course, you, you did mention Christian Cologne already, but really the prospect everybody's waiting for in Kansas City is Will Myers. And I guess my question is, what what are they waiting for? I, you know, I have no idea. I've been trying to figure this out for about a month now. Um, you know, because once the trade deadline passed and, uh, and and they you know kind of stayed put with their outfield, I, I still thought that they were going to make a, a move. I mean, Myers has done everything. The only thing I can think of is he has struck out quite a few times. I think he struck out 133 times this year. So... I don't know if they're wanting him to work on his, uh, you know, on reducing his strikeout rate or, or what, but, I mean, he's got 34 home runs. He's hitting 300, um, 565 slugging percentage. Um, you know, he, he still he walks a fair amount, so even though he strikes out a lot. Um, defensively, he can play, you know, either center field or, or right field because he's got a strong arm. And he's just one of the more dynamic young hitters that, that I think we've seen come along recently. And it seems to me if, if you're thinking for – 2013, if he's going to be possibly one of your starting outfielders, I think you have to. I'm surprised that they haven't given him a chance now to see what he can do and just get a more extended look. But I'm sure in September he'll he'll definitely be up. But I'm I'm kind of perplexed as to why they've waited so long. There's no service clock advantage, is there? No, not at this point. No. Yeah, it's a mystery, but the uh, the way the Kansas City Royals are run is often a mystery to people who watch them who watch them do it. Uh, in Minnesota, they're a little sharper about how they run their their team. They've been looking for a long time to get some additional offensive power into their lineup. Is Aaron Hicks maybe part of the answer? I, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens with him. He's really struggled. Um, you know, for years and years, he was one of those guys that everybody loved. His, uh, you know, scouts just raved about his tools, and he was real athletic and can do. You know, in batting practice, just looked like a world beater. And then in game action, he just didn't hit. He didn't hit for power. Um, so he's starting to do a little bit better this year. He's hitting 280 with 12 home runs, uh, and he does have 27 stolen bases, so he's the kind of guy that brings that, which, you know, the Twins love. He's got a good plate to splint, he steals bases, he's got a bit of power, can kind of do everything. Um, I do think that, you know, this is really kind of a, for him, it's, it's kind of a breakout, although to say, you know, that the guy's hitting 280, that's a breakout. Uh, but compared to what he's done in, in previous years, it is kind of a breakout. Um, he can, you know, he's the kind of guy that you could slot in because of the speed and because of the plus t- defense that he provides. Um, he can immediately start to contribute to a team, whereas other guys, if they just have offense, aren't going to be able to do that. So I do think Hicks will see a significant amount of playing time 
um, one way or another. Obviously, you know, if Denard's band gets shut down or something else happens, uh, I do think he'll see significant playing time. You mentioned uh, he has not been as productive in in double a as maybe they would have liked a 452 slugging percentage what's 150 points short of will myers for instance at who's doing it at triple a uh, th- that's got to be a bit of a caution yeah and you know certain you got to you know figure that that's going to come down even more once he reaches the majors and so yeah. I, I don't think you know that at least at this point in time he's going to provide a ton of offense but i do think because he's got some good speed and he'll get on base and he plays good defense that that's a, you know it's not like the twins are, are going anywhere this year so um you know I, I think you worry about guys that are overmatched uh and he might be a little bit um but i do think because of the plus defense and the good speed that he'll get a chance to play and finally among uh, american league hitters lars anderson of cleveland languished for many years in the boston organization and finally got moved over and cleveland's clearly out of it they're losing like crazy of late uh, is there any chance he gets a, a decent look in september for the indians yeah i i would think so I and mean, you know he's kind of disappointed um and i think he does have some good skills out you know i just thought he was one of the better offensive prospects out there um you know good solid hitter and so i think it, especially you know in cleveland where they're you know, they just have a rash of injuries every year, it seems like. Um, you know, finding somebody to, to, that's a long-term solution at, at first base seems like a, a priority, and so I would think he's going to get some, some significant at-bats down the stretch. Batters on the National League side, everybody in baseball has got to be talking about the prospect of Billy Hamilton, the Cincinnati shortstop prospect, making it up for a September call-up, maybe only as a pinch runner. He's rapidly approaching 150 bags in the minor leagues. Uh, he's a new record holder surpassing Vince Coleman. We've talked about Billy Hamilton in the past, Rob, whether he can play shortstop, he's going to move to center field. But the question for this year is, do you think the Reds are going to call him up, given his young age and relative short of, shortness of experience? Yeah, I do think they'll call him up. Um, you know, I was just reading some comments Dusty Baker made, uh, I think yesterday, saying that he's really excited about having him. It almost sounded like it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to come up. Um, I don't think he's going to see a lot of at-bats, necessarily. <laughs> Um, you know, this is a guy who who's basically got 132 at bats, 140 at bats at uh, at Double A that in his career. So he's very inexperienced. I think he would be totally overmatched at the major league level, just especially since he's like a more of a slashing kind of hitter, anyways. Um, but you know, if you can if you can use him as a, a pinch runner every night, um, boy, you could you could really create some excitement there. And I mean, he's he's so fast and he gets such a quick start off the you know off the base that. I, it, it's unlikely that the major league catchers are going to, even if they know he's going to steal, that, that they're going to be able to get him. And so, you know, if you could, in a late inning situation, if you could, you know, a guy gets on first and you can put him in and realize he's probably going to be able to get to second or third even, um, that's, a, that's a pretty dangerous tool to have. Yeah, and there's, what, about 25, 26 games in September. If he does that once a game, he could steal it close to 30 bags just as a pinch runner. And I think it's it's interesting, Rob, that if you look at his 2012 record, in uh, at, at high A, he was getting on base to the tune of a 413 on base percentage, which is good, and then he moved to double A, which is theoretically a tougher uh, level to manage, and his on-base percentage actually went up to 419. No, so, I, and I think that that's the, you know, long-term, that's the thing that's really the most uh, exciting for me. I mean, he, he really has, has improved his play discipline significantly. Um, you know, so his batting eye is about, for the year, is about .75, which is pretty good for a young player. Um, you know, so that's going to be the key. I don't think he's ever going to be 
the kind of guy that's going to hit 300 on a regular basis. But if he can hit 270, 280 and walk a bunch and have that kind of speed, then you really have a special player there. And especially in fantasy formats, I mean, if you can get 30 stolen bases from a guy in like the last, you know, six weeks of the season, <laughs> that's, that's amazing to have. And if, imagine if he was playing regularly, you're, you're talking about a guy who's almost a lock, presuming he stays healthy, to steal 100, 105 bases. And that, uh, last week I was talking with Gene McCaffrey, and he said if these days if you draft the best base stealer in baseball, Michael Bourne or somebody like that, and you say to yourself, now I've got my stolen base category locked up, well, you really don't. You're, you're only like uh, maybe three-fifths of the way there. If you've got 110 stolen bases locked up in one player, you really do have a hammerlock on the category. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and he, I mean, he's gotten on base 232 times already this year. So, you know, if he, if he gets on base anywhere near that rate in the majors, he, he's going to steal 100 bases, yeah. But where does he play in the field? Right, and that's the, that's the thing that's going to prevent him from being ready to play and make an impact, you know, uh, in, in the short term. I think he's, they have to figure out where he's going to play, and I just don't think it's going to be shortstop. Um, and I'm kind of surprised that given, given how, much, how his speed plays, that they haven't already moved him to the outfield to see to see what he looks like there, and he has a fairly weak throwing arm, which really affects his ability to play short effectively, and probably limits him to left field. When you think, uh, I, I guess you could you could see him in center field if you're willing to put up with a, with a fairly weak arm. There are teams that do that. There are teams that do that, and certainly you know you've seen some pretty bad throwing arms from center fielders in the past. Um, I do think you know depending on. Depending on the situation, I think left field is probably the logical place. I could see him; he's got enough speed, obviously, to be an asset in center field. But um, but you know, it's also a matter of being able to read the ball, and we just don't know yet whether he's going to be able to do that. And in center field, that's a that's a pretty big risk if the guy can't get good reads on the ball. So left field is probably uh, a logical place to put him at this point. And you have to think any fast guy in any outfield position really creates opportunities for the other guys in the outfield. I mean, if you've got a, a relatively slower-footed center fielder, but you've got the guy on left can run like the wind, well, you can shade around to right a little more and cover territory that way, knowing that this guy's going to be able to run down a few more gap uh, left-field gap balls than, than uh, another left fielder might. Yeah, that's true, yeah. In San Diego, they have an infielder named Jed Jorko who's made a splash in the minor leagues and could be ticketed for a call-up. What's his story? Yeah, Jed Jorko, he's one of the better pure hitters in the minors, and we saw him in the in the fall league last year. Um, and since being drafted in 2010, he, he's really done nothing but hit. His career minor league line now is 321, 387 with a 529 slugging percentage. So not only does he have really good plate discipline and he gets on base a lot, but he you know he's got nice power. So he's got uh, 25 home runs this year between AA and AAA, um, hitting 339 at, uh, at AAA. So um, he, didn't have, he didn't have any speed hardly. And third base is a little bit of a stretch defensively for him. But this guy's just a professional hitter. And I think Petco is probably going to be – I know there's always those concerns about how, to, how does a, you know, a young prospect handle hitting in, in Petco but in San Diego. But um, I think he's got such a nice line drive stroke that even if he doesn't – hit as many home runs in the majors, he's still going to hit plenty of doubles. Um, and he just is, is a consummate professional hitter. Um, not much to look at, you know, athletically. He doesn't have that same sort of physicality that somebody like Aaron Hicks has. But this guy can hit. Yeah, I was, again, looking at his uh, line for this year. At double-A, he slugged 431. He moves up to triple-A and increases that to 589, which is a, a good harbinger. If you're, if you're gaining stats as you move up levels, that's really a good sign. Yeah, and especially, you know, and he's hit for power before, so, uh, you know, the, 
the line at uh, at Double A in San Antonio was only 130 at bats, and so um, you know the the power there is uh, uh you know been pretty consistent. So I think um, you know he's he's the kind of guy that's going to hit 300 with a 500 slugging percentage. It's just a question of where the where the Padre is going to play him. Probably probably in the outfield because Chase Headley's had a pretty good year at third base, um, and Gallardo is not an upgrade defensively. So probably he is the one that gets moved. In Arizona, they have a a, a little guy, a five foot eight inch guy called Adam Eaton, who's an outfield prospect, and a he's really exciting, which maybe could put some uh, rear ends in seats for them. But also, he's been a, a solid offensive performer. I keep thinking if this guy could only play second base, um, he would be an all star because because uh, you know he he's just a really dynamic hitter. He plays the great, the game really aggressively. He runs everything hard. Um, you know the problem is he just doesn't have that power that you're typically looking for from from a corner outfielder, uh, or even from a center fielder these days. So you know he he just is a, a great hitter. He's he's hitting um, you know over well over 300. He's hitting 384 at AAA. Um, his career minor league line is 355 batting average um, with a 456 on base percentage. You know so he he's just I'm surprised that he hasn't gotten called up already. He's probably I mean. He's probably because of his size. Uh, he's probably doomed to be a fourth outfielder long term, and he's going to be the kind of guy that everyone's like, "Oh, why doesn't that guy get more bats?" And it's just the the lack of power um, that you're expecting typically these days from from an outfielder that's going to hold him back. But this guy can hit. But in Arizona, I mean, couldn't you make the argument that hey, we've we've got a decent power guy at second base in Aaron Hill, or maybe sometime down the road we could find somebody, but. Gosh, if if you had a guy like Eaton patrolling left or center field, you put him at the top of the order, you let him get on base to the tune of 460 or whatever he's managing in the minor leagues, he's going to steal you, what, 40, 50 bags probably, and certainly a good base runner who's going to score runs. He's going to be able to round the bases quickly. I don't know. It, it seems like if so many teams are locked into the idea that our outfielders have to be power guys, they might be missing opportunities. Well, I definitely. I, I mean, I would totally agree with that because I think he's. I think he's capable of doing exactly that. I mean, he's got 37 stolen bases, actually over 40 stolen bases between the two levels in the minors this year. Um, and I do think he's got that potential to be able to do that. It's just a question of whether teams are going to realize that or not. It's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with BaseballHQ.com, minor league expert Rob Gordon, talking about the call-ups. And let's move to the pitchers, Rob. In the American League, the name I think everybody's watching is Danny Hultson of Seattle. Yeah, I'm really interested to see what uh, what he ends up doing. He, you know, he's been really interesting to watch. Um, you know, I saw him pitch in college quite a bit, and thought, you know, he really. I think he's he's always kind of been better than people give him credit for, especially as a as a lefty. Um, but he's got really good command, a, a plus change up, and above average slider, and a, and a real good fastball. Um, and he can just dominate hitters. You know, he he doesn't look like a, you know a Justin Verlander throwing 100 miles an hour. But he's a he's a really good pitcher, and he really knows how to like how, how to think about pitching and how to set up hitters. Um, he struggled a little bit with his command after he got promoted to uh, to AAA, but that's not uncommon. You know, the, the Pacific Coast League's a notoriously hitter friendly league, so um, I would look more at his results at, at AA as a, an indication of what he might do in the majors. And he was very good there. Um, you know, I, I don't know what, whether he's going to be you know slotted right into the rotation when he gets called up, but I do think he'll see some significant starts down the stretch. Yeah, and his uh, dominance rate, his strikeout per nine rate, actually rose as he moved up a level. It was the walks that really killed him in, at AAA. Right. And before we move on, uh, what about uh, Taiwan Walker? Uh, I like Taiwan Walker. He, you know, he's done really well. I think uh, I'm not sure whether he's going to get 
significant if he if he's going to get called up or see significant playing time. Um, but he's uh, you know he's really been impressed me over the last couple of years. He um, when I saw him pitch in the in the Midwest League, he you know you could see the potential there, and you could just love to see that kind of athletic. Uh, physical kind of pitcher who can really he is that kind of guy that you unlike Hulton where he Hulton doesn't really impress you with his physicality Taiwan Walker really does he's just super strong super athletic and just man he's just got amazing stuff I, I'm I'm really excited to see what he's going to do once he reaches the majors you mentioned Justin Verlander a hard throwing strike throwing starting pitcher Detroit might have another one in right-hander Bruce Rondon but uh, so far, he's had a, a little trouble early on in his career harnessing that that great fastball. He's doing a little better at that now. Is he likely to get called up, and what's his role going to be? Yeah, so this is a, this is probably one of the more dynamic relievers uh, you know out there, and and he throws triple digits. Uh, you know, if anyone was watching the futures game this year, uh, he can really he can really dominate. He's got not only the the hundred mile an hour plus fastball, but uh, you know, good hard slider, which is a great combination. For uh, for a relief pitcher, he does struggle with his control. Um, I think you know that's a, that's the thing that you you know you want the guy who's going to throw 100 miles an hour but struggles a bit with control. Do you want somebody like Halton who doesn't throw that hard but can really command his stuff? And so I think Rondon is going to is probably going to get a chance to you know the Tigers are definitely you know, trying to make a playoff run, and I think any any help they can get out of their bullpen is is something that they're looking for. So I I think he's going to get some significant innings down the stretch, um, but I think he he does have a tendency to struggle with his control, so that's that's going to hold him back a little bit. In Oakland, Brad Peacock has been a disappointment. Certainly, a lot of people had high hopes for him that haven't been realized. Is there a chance he gets called up for the stretch run as the uh, A's make a playoff drive? Yeah, I, I think that there's a chance he, get call, he gets called up. I think just given how he struggled this year, I'm not sure that they're going to give him significant you know innings down the stretch. Um, I could see them maybe resting somebody and him getting a spot start or two. I, you know, in the past, he's he's really shown the ability to control and command, uh, and so sometimes those guys reach uh, a point where you know it's good to be able to throw strikes, but you also have to be able to miss miss some bats. And so, I I'm wondering if he hasn't sort of reached that point where, um, you know, the the fact that his fastball is in the you know more in the 90, 91 range isn't going to limit his long term potential. But Oakland's you know Oakland's had plenty of success with pitchers like that. Uh, he does fit their profile. He throws strikes. Um, he's not going to blow people away. So I do think that they'll give him a chance to to get some some innings down the stretch. But I'm I'd be a little leery of putting him on my team. And Tampa, just one great pitcher coming up out of the out of the minor leagues after another. Uh, the latest one looks like it might be Chris Archer, a right-hander. Um, they they they're very slow and careful about bringing these guys up. Is Chris Archer going to be one of these guys who gets caught by that slow and careful approach, or might he might he be seen this year? Well, I think I do think they're, they're continuing that slow as they go a, a approach there. Um, so if he does got, does get called up, I don't think he'll see you know a lot of innings. Um, he was uh, he was one of the, the players that came over in, from the Cubs in the in the Matt Garza trade, and and you know I think. Uh, he has he has nice stuff. He certainly had a very good year this year, um, you know, maybe even a bit better than than he was advertised. And so I think they'll probably be fairly patient with him, just like they have with all their other uh, pitching prospects. Um, but he's a, definitely a guy to keep an eye on. If he does come up, I wouldn't I wouldn't hesitate to put him on my roster just because he's he's shown very good control this year. And uh, I think we talked about this before, but you all almost always have to like guys who are getting called up by organizations who have proved that they're good at assessing 
those type of players. And Tampa certainly has a track record of drafting good pitchers, developing those pitchers carefully, and calling them up at the right time to get good results. So it's a, it seems like it's just a better bet to take a Tampa pitcher than a Kansas City pitcher, for instance. Oh, I would totally agree. I mean, the same thing, you know, you could say the same thing about the Cubs. I mean, um, Archer's probably going to be put in those situations where they think he's going to succeed, um, whereas there are other teams that are just like, well, let's call this guy up and, and we don't have anything else that's really viable at the major league level, so let's see what, what he can do. Sure. Um, and they're just going to, like, hope that he figures out <laughs> how to pitch sort of on the job. Um, you know, so I, I'd much rather have a guy like Archer, who they, they've been really patient with, and has demonstrated that, you know, AAA, I think AAA gets, gets a bad rap for whatever reason. I think everyone thinks all the good players are at, at AA, and a lot of the good prospects are, but there's a lot of really professional, experienced hitters at AAA. And if you can get those guys out, I think it both, those, they may not be great major league players, but they're good mistake hitters. Um, and so being able to, to sort of dominate at that level is a, is a really good sign. And I think Tampa's good at that. Moving on to the National League, the Arizona Diamondbacks called up Tyler Skaggs. Uh, I got a lot of questions the other day when I was pinch-hitting for Ron in the USA Today chat on Wednesday. Uh, a lot of people asking, is Tyler Skaggs going to stick in the rotation? Is he going to bump somebody from the rotation? How are they going to handle that? And I guess my first question to you is, will he stick? Uh, I, I think, well, it's interesting. That, that was a good, good game to watch last night. So, you know, Tyler Skaggs versus Jacob Turner. Uh, Turner actually looked better there, and Skaggs uh, was a little bit wild in his uh, in his outing. Walked, I think, five guys, um, which is weird because that's normally he's, he has really good control. So I think I think he will stick. I think you know he, he's got he's not as good a prospect as Trevor Bauer is, but he's less volatile than than Bauer is. And normally he throws lots of strikes. He's got good stuff. He throws you know pitches from the left hand side, uh, low 90s fastball with nice deception, uh, a plus curveball slider, change-up, so he has four pitches, and he locates them all pretty well. Um, I, do think he'll, I do think he'll stick just because I think he, he's got that ability to be able to outthink hitters and to not walk players, which is, is key. Um, I don't know how many starts he'll, he'll get down the stretch, but I think he's up for good. And you have to like uh, a future Arizona rotation with Bauer, Pat Corbin, Tyler Skaggs. They're, they're shaping up nicely. Yeah, they've really, I think, done a uh, sort of underappreciated job in terms of their prospecting over the last decade. Um, they, they've really developed a, a lot of good young players. You look at their team, and a lot of those guys that they have you know, at the major league level came from their minor league organization. And, yeah, that's, that's an exciting uh, you know, trio of players there that they've got with, with Bauer, Corbin, and, and Skaggs, and they've, they've got other guys coming behind those guys, too. You mentioned Jacob Turner in Miami it went over from Detroit, of course, in the Anibal Sanchez deal, which Detroit probably is thinking maybe wasn't such a great deal. But uh, uh, Jacob Turner did look good the other night when he was pitching against Arizona. How's his long-term outlook? Well, I, it'll be interesting because I, I saw him pitch quite a few times uh, at Toledo and then um, in Detroit. I saw both of his two starts this year in Detroit. Um, and the same thing with all these young pitchers. It's going to be about his control. So and just trusting his stuff. His stuff is plenty good. Um, you know, he's not going to throw 96 most, most nights. He's going to sit between 90 and 93 with his fastball. But he's got good movement on it, and uh, he does have good breaking ball. It's just a matter of whether he's going to, you know, be able to have the control he needs in order to do it on a regular basis. It was definitely encouraging to see his start last night. He didn't walk anybody. Um, so I think he went six innings, gave up three runs, and no walks and five strikeouts. That's, that's a solid, that's the 
best performance I've seen him have in the major leagues. Um, I, I think he's really probably more of like a number two or number three starter, more likely probably a number three starter. So I don't think he's going to have the the dominance that uh, that you're looking for from a, from a number one guy. But I do think he he pitched well last night, and I think there's potential there. But he's he's pretty young, and I think you know the move from the American League to the National League is definitely going to help him. Um, I, I think that that's maybe going to be key for his for his development at this point. But but I think he's still got some growing pains there. Yeah, the cautionary note looks to be uh, as he's climbed up levels from A to AAA, changing teams into major leagues, uh, his dominance rate fell, his walk rate rose, and therefore his command rate uh, in the major leagues in Detroit, he was walking a guy for every strikeout. But they say he's going to be part of a six-man rotation down there, so that's that might actually be good a few extra days off between starts. Yeah, so he can work on some things. And I do think you know people are going to look at his ERAs and his win-loss record in the minors and say, well, that guy looks pretty good. But, but you're absolutely right. His his dominance rate, you know, has fallen at every level, and his control, his you know, walks per nine has risen at every level. So that's a huge red flag. Um, and you know, like I said, when he pitched in Detroit, he he would get hit, you know, early, and then he'd start trying to be really, you know, too fine and trying to hit the corners, and and then he fell behind hitters, and that's just the kiss of death for for young pitchers is to always be pitching behind. Um, I do think it's nice that they're going with a six-man rotation. I think it gives him a little more time to sort of adjust between starts and think about what he's done. But um, I think he's going to be pretty volatile over the over the, for the rest of the, this year, and then also I think in the future. BaseballHQ.com covered uh, Zach Wheeler and said it's going to be interesting to see if the Mets call him up to join Matt Harvey as kind of the centerpiece of the rotation for the future. How likely do you think it is that Zach Wheeler sees some big league time? Well, I think he's ready. Um, I think he's got even better stuff than Matt Harvey. And so, you know, for an organization that's really trying to figure out what the, what it, where its future lies, I think, you know, with Zach Wheeler and Matt Harvey, I think you've got two solid uh, mid-rotation, maybe even front-of-the-rotation kind of, kind of players there. Um, but he's already, he's already maxed. He's already exceeded his, his innings pitched, um, you know, career, career high. And so, um, you know, I could see them being cautious with him since they're not really going anywhere at this point. Uh, and they already have Harvey in the in their rotation. I could see them being cautious with him, but I also think that if they if they put him in the rotation, I think he'd have good results. I think he's been pitching really well. Um, he ha- he does have pretty good control. He's got good dominance ratio. Um, he limits the number of base runners. So I think he I think it'd be interesting to see. I think he's ready. It's just a question of whether the organization wants to be cautious with him or not. Especially since they really have nothing to accomplish by doing anything with a, a prized young prospect like that. Maybe the smart move is to keep him uh, healthy for the future and, and just let him finish his year and be done with it. I guess we'll see. Uh, finally, in the National League, Shelby Miller of St. Louis may be one of the biggest disappointments among pitchers in all of the minors this year, although he's certainly recovered in the second half. Yeah, I, uh, Miller was really perplexing to me for, for about half of the season because I thought not only was he one of the best you know, pitching prospects in the minors, but I thought he'd be up and contributing in St. Louis this year. Um, you know, they, they've really been very aggressive with his promotion uh, up until up until now, and so I figured, you know, if he pitched fairly well in the first half, he'd be up by the All-Star break uh, in, in doing something, whether, you know, he's pitching in the rotation or, or pitching in relief in, in St. Louis. Um, but he had a horrible first half, you know, and, and he had a six-plus ERA. He is walking, you know, tons of batters. Um, but he's really figured things out in the second half. And you know, we talked earlier about about making adjustments, and, and that's the kind of thing that you really look for. Um, in the second, he's had eight starts in the, since the All-Star break, and um, he's walked four 
and struck out 54 in 47 innings. So that's pretty impressive, you know, uh, being able to, to make that adjustment. Whatever adjustment he needed to make, he obviously has figured that out to only walk four guys in the last 48 innings. is pretty impressive. So I, I do think he's ready for the majors now. I think he, he was very disappointing in the first half, but I think he's, he's back on track at this point. And I could see him either, you know, being a, a spot starter or even working in relief at some point. And Jaime Garcia might uh, create some opportunities for him to get a start here or there as well if his recovery doesn't go 100%. Yeah, and I think I think Miller's ready for it. I think he, um, you know, he's been he's been all year at uh, at AAA, so he's had four starts at, or 24 starts at, at AAA this year. Um, and I think people are going to see that 5.19 ERA and think, wow, that. <laughs> That's that's pretty scary, but uh, again, that four four walks and fifty four strikeouts in his last eight starts, I think, suggests that he's ready to go. Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rob Gordon and Rob. Before we let you go, I have to ask you about Dylan Bundy. The uh, there are rumors all over the place. He will get called up. He won't get called up. Uh, what do you think is going to happen with Dylan Bundy this year? And of course, he remains a very very solid candidate for the future. Yeah, well, you know. I, I think personally, I think it'd be crazy to call him up at this point. I know he's been really good and he's really dynamic, and he, he's sort of the the you know future uh, of that organization. Probably the, maybe either at this point, depending on how many at bats Jerks and Profar and some of those other players get, he might be the, the number one prospect going into next year. But he's only 19, and and this is his you know his, his first professional season really. Um, I, I I just think it's I think it's way too early to, to have him anywhere near the, the majors. Uh, you know, you just run the risk that he's going he's gonna to mess something up. He's going to, you know, try and do something uh, different or, or whatnot. I, I think it's crazy to be talking about that. But he is, he is really dynamic. And, I mean, could he come up and, and pitch and be effective? Absolutely. I just think there's too much risk there. And uh, I have to ask you about Oswaldo Arcia of Minnesota. He's an outfield prospect, still kind of lost in the shuffle a little bit with all of these names we've been talking about. But I have him on my uh, my home league farm roster, and I'm wondering, uh, should I hold on to him? Is he going to get anywhere anytime soon? Yeah, I, I would still hold on to him. Um, I, I think he's been pretty good this year between high A and double A. Um, you know, he's got some, some natural abilities, seeing the power develop a little bit. Um, he's still pretty wa- pretty raw at this point. Um but you know, I, I I think if you're if you're looking for an immediate impact, he might be a little bit soon. Um, but I would definitely hang on to him. I think you don't you don't see guys with that you know natural hitting ability with the with the power potential come along all that often. Um, so I, I'd definitely be be optimistic about him still. Any players whose stock in the minor leagues rose enough this year that they might be worth a draft pick next year and not already drafted in in fantasy? Yeah, leagues? I mean. That happens every year, and I think there's been some really interesting players this year who might still be available. Um, uh, Alan Hansen is an infield prospect from Pittsburgh, continues to just really impress. He's showing the ability to hit for average and power, uh, which is really nice. Um, Xander Bogarts, uh, you know, if you don't play in a really deep league, he might still be available. Um, shortstop for, for Boston, who's already up at double-A and, and really more than holding his own there. It actually... Another one of those guys that his numbers actually went up when he went to to Double A and, and showing good power for a shortstop. That's really something that's interesting. Um, Matt Barnes is the guy we talked about uh, in, in one of the earlier shows. Um, continues to pitch well for Boston. Um, Tyler Austin has, has been a real surprise for the Yankees, an outfielder, center fielder for the Yankees. Um, again, showing showing nice ability to hit for average and power. Uh, 
so you know, every year I think there's there's guys like that 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 sort of come along that probably are st- you know if if it's a redraft league or if it's a league where you know you only get to draft the guys at the beginning of the year, those guys are probably all still available at this point because unless you're playing in a super deep league, I doubt any of those guys got drafted. On the flip side of that coin, are there any guys that probably have been drafted in fantasy ultra or farm formats that probably are worth dropping at this point just because they're not getting it done? Yeah, I mean, you know, you never know. Sometimes these guys will turn things around, but um, I would be, I, I think it's time to cut bait on Mike Montgomery for, for Kansas City. If I, if I had him on my I did have him on my team, I got rid of him. Um, I just wouldn't want that guy around my team because if he does, does get called up, I just don't think he's going to have success. Um, same with Martin Perez. Uh, you know, he's always been level, young for the level that he's been at, but um, he just is not showing the control that's going to be necessary to get hitters out on a regular basis in the majors. Um, Julio Tehran, I kind of go back and forth on this guy. Um, but if you look at his numbers, I, I saw him pitch a couple times at AAA this year, and his mechanics look totally off to me. He doesn't look anywhere nearly near as dynamic as, as he did last year. Um, and if you look at his numbers, it, to me, that's a huge red flag. He's walking guys. They're hitting him. His, his, his fastball doesn't look as crisp. His, his off-speed stuff is not anywhere near as good. So I, I'm not sure if I would – he's still pretty young, so I'm not sure if I would totally cut bait with him, but I, I think there's some pretty big red flags with him. And finally, Rob, what's the agenda at BaseballHQ.com for prospect coverage as we head down the stretch and then into the offseason? Yeah, so we're uh, we're kind of winding up the end of the season. Um, next week, uh, we're doing our top one, starting our top 100 prospect review, which is always kind of a humbling experience to go back and look at at our top 100 prospect list at the beginning of the year and and, and see which ones we got right and and, and which ones we got wrong. Um, and I think you know we've gotten we've gotten more right than we got wrong, um, but still, it's, you look at some of the guys on the list like a, a Joe Benson uh, from Minnesota and think, right. well, you know, why was that guy? ranked in the top 50 so uh we'll be kind of reviewing that uh in, over the next couple of weeks and then we'll start up our arizona fall league coverage um so we have a preview column coming up there and then we'll obviously have uh, a review of the arizona fall league uh once that gets underway and then uh, jeremy and i start uh, working on the 2013 minor league baseball analyst and start preparing for our organizational top 15 reports which start coming out in december you mentioned the Minor League Baseball Analyst. That's an annual uh, book that people can get. It really offers some super in-depth coverage of, of hundreds and hundreds of prospects. Yeah, we have uh, over 1,000 prospects that we uh, provide scouting reports for. Um, so we'll go through and not only look at their statistical performance from last year, but also uh, kind of talk about their skills and their tools for, uh, like I said, over 1,000 players. Um, and then provide a, a nice uh, a compendium at the at the back of the book where we talk about the top 100 prospects, each organization's top 15 prospects, the best base dealers, uh, the best pitching prospects, the best fastball, best breaking ball, uh, best hitting tools, and, and kind of really go into, into depth over all the, the top prospects out there. And that comes out well enough in advance uh, of the season so that everybody who does have farm drafts or ultra drafts is going to be able to get it in time to give it a good read? Yeah, absolutely. It comes out in January. Um, it's 1995. Uh, if you order it through the through the website, um, it's definitely uh, well worth the, the investment. And I think, especially if you're if you're playing any sort of dynasty or 
ultra league where you're looking really deep for prospects it's a it's a really good tool boy it really is and if you are in a league that allows farm drafting or ultra reserve drafting and you need to pick up prospects the minor league baseball analyst is really something that you should have on your bookshelf because it's an absolutely excellent tool for that kind of purpose Rob, you'll have your minor league minute a little later on in the show. Thanks very much for joining us this week uh, and doing this great job of covering the September call-ups. Thanks, Patrick. Thanks for having me on the show. Rob Gordon is a minor league analyst at BaseballHQ.com. You're listening. <clears throat> Our regular commentaries are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Why to attend First Pitch Arizona? Reason number 44. It's an amazing three-day event and will absolutely give you a leg up on the other owners in your leagues. Try to make sure that the program is um, is fresh every year with new topics, and people obviously will learn a lot from that. I do. I mean, I've been playing fantasy baseball since 1984, and I always learn by attending the talks uh, every year that I'm able to apply to managing my roster or draft day. When we're not at the ballpark, we're running seminar sessions and competitions. The slate of speakers at these sessions is incredible. There's all kinds of different educational uh, topics, and uh, it, I think it helps make people a better player. Nowhere else will you ever find this many top baseball experts together in one place at one time. First Pitch Arizona, November 2nd to 4th at the Double Tree Suites Hotel in Phoenix. Go to baseballhq.com slash seminars slash Arizona for more information and to register. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with his Market Pulse, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler in the hole with Master Notes, and leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon comes back to tell us about St. Louis right-handed pitching prospect Michael Waka. The St. Louis Cardinals' Michael Waka is making a push to be the first starting pitcher from the 2012 draft to reach the majors. Waka was the 19th overall pick in the draft after a standout career at Texas A&M. Since signing with the Cardinals, Waka has already pitched at three different levels, including an impressive outing this week in his AA debut. On August 19th, the 21-year-old right-hander pitched three hitless innings, walking one while striking out six. On the year, Waka now has an ERA of just 0.56 with two walks and 29 strikeouts and a minuscule 0.96 batting average against in 16 innings. The 6'6", 200-pound Waka features a good 90-93 mile-an-hour fastball and a changeup that many considered the best in the draft. He also throws a slider and a curveball, but both are currently below average. Waka probably won't make his Major League debut this September, but the Cardinals have a solid track record of player development, and the fact that they have already moved him to AA indicates that they are very confident about his development and optimistic about his long-term chances. If Michael Walker can develop a decent breaking ball, his fastball, changeup, and plus command give him the potential to be a solid number two or three starter, and that could happen much sooner than was initially anticipated. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garapi, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. Baseball HQ's call-up reports this week looked at Philadelphia right-hander Philippe Omont, good Canadian boy, Arizona right-hander Tyler Skaggs, whose name has come up already on this show, Pittsburgh right-hander Kyle McPherson, Colorado outfielder Charlie Blackman, and many more. 
If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about how Mitt Romney used the Market Pulse trading strategy. How does Mitt Romney's selection of Paul Ryan as his vice president relate to fantasy baseball and the Market Pulse on Baseball HQ? Remember a couple weeks ago we talked about the trade deadline, that sometimes you may make trades that don't make sense on the surface but can really weaken your opponent. You weren't looking just to catch him in a category. If you're trailing, you have to also weaken him in any way possible. So maybe you make a, a trade that doesn't make logical sense but gets a closer to somebody further down the standings that will help limit the leader's save lead. You know, the other guy can catch him and now cause your leader to lose a point in that category. Same thing with a stolen base maven. Maybe you traded a speedster like Ben Revere to a lower category guy to weaken that leader in a category. It doesn't matter how the points come out. It's just what they add up to at the end. There's only so much you can do to catch the person ahead of you. You also have to weaken them. How does that relate to Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan? Everyone thought Mitt Romney was going to take Marco Rubio because he had just to win Florida. Yes, the polls show that right now Romney has to win Florida, North Carolina, and Virginia to have a chance. But even if he would win those states, the current polls show an electoral map favoring President Obama by about 20 points. For Romney to win, and we're not getting political here saying who's better or worse, the fun part is the analysis. We love to analyze numbers and strategies in all areas of life. Romney had to convert Obama states to Romney to win the overall election. He had to find an area where Obama's support was weak and where he had a chance to win. And the answer was the upper Midwest, going across Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Ohio. By turning some of those states to Romney was his only chance to win. Yes, he still had to win Florida, North Carolina, Virginia, but those states alone would not guarantee him victory. He had to convert some Obama states. He had to weaken the leader, not just try to catch them up in those must-win categories. By picking someone from the upper Midwest, he hopes to convert several states away from the Obama column, putting them in play, giving him a better chance at winning the overall election. So the theories we use, we talk about, on our podcast, as we think about fantasy baseball, can apply to lots of things in life. And it applies to your baseball team if you can still trade. Remember that. If you're looking at strategies down the stretch, you know, look for the biggest impact. And it may not always come where it is. You may have to punt a category. You may have to look at categories where the leader's most vulnerable, that maybe he can be knocked down. Any way you can do it, you've got to look beyond just the surface stats, how you can catch him. You've got to look for any way to weaken him as well. With the Market Pulse for Baseball HQ and HQ Radio, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about what to expect in 2013 from Mike Trout. I want to talk about a player who I've been writing about lately in my column at USA Today as well as in my weekly chats. He is an amazing player having an amazing year. Let's, let's set the mood with a question from one of those chats. Hey, Ron, Mike Trout has been unbelievable. What stats should we be thinking about for him next year? Should there be some regression? He's clearly going to be a top five pick in non-keeper leagues. Well, you're 
absolutely 100% correct. His average draft position next year will most certainly be in the top five. And anyone who drafts him that high has to be absolutely crazy. I, I know I know it's human nature to put inflated emphasis on current performance. We call it the recency bias. You look at Trout's current numbers, and how can you conceive of him not being a top-five pick? At minimum, he's a first-rounder, right? How can that not be guaranteed with numbers like these? How about a little history lesson? In 2005, Derek Lee put up a monster season. He hit 46 home runs and batted 335, making him the number one player in all of fantasy that year. This was an eight-year veteran who had never hit more than 32 home runs or batted higher than 282. The next spring, he rose to an ADP of seven. He hasn't cracked the first round since. In 2006, Ryan Howard hit 58 home runs and batted 313 in his first full major league season, ranking him fourth among all players. For the next four years, Howard entered the season with a first-round ADP, but he hasn't finished among the game's top 15 players since that first year. 2009, Joe Maurer hit 28 home runs, more than double any previous season's output, and batted a career-high 365. That was seventh best in all of baseball that year. The following spring, we warned everyone of the coming regression, but those 2009 numbers and position scarcity elevated him to an ADP of 13. He hasn't finished anywhere in the top five rounds since. In 2010, it was Carlos Gonzalez hitting 34 home runs, stealing 36 bases, and batting 336 in his first full major league season. He was the number one player in baseball that year and opened the 2011 ADPs at number six. Regression pulled him out of the first round last year, though he's back in the top 10 so far in 2012. Last year, all sorts of breakout performances. Matt Kemp and Jacoby Ellsbury finished number one and number two, respectively. Curtis Granderson was number six, and Adrian Gonzalez was number seven. The latter two were first-timers to finishing in the top 15. All four will be finishing nowhere near first-round value this year. Who is returning first-round value this year so far? Miguel Cabrera, Ryan Braun, Josh Hamilton, David Wright, players who have been consistent first-rounders before. Andrew McCutcheon and Edwin Encarnacion, players with a skills track record that has been improving moderately over time, not spiking. Justin Verlander and Felix Hernandez, players with a long-term track record of exemplary skills. These are the players I will be looking towards as returning first-round value next year. I'd also be looking towards players with excellent skills who might have had a slightly off year in 2012. By that token, I'd probably be more likely to draft a Justin Upton in the first round than a Mike Trout. For me, Trout is more likely to be next year's Eric Hosmer. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Eric Hosmer, woo! <laughs> Bet you there's going to be some commenting about that. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday at BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about experiencing the rush. Ron also has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 Eastern at USAToday.com, and he discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. 
You can get Ron's Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also brings his Master Notes here to Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of August the 25th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 32 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and rate our show with those five stars. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon. It's always great to talk with Rob, and he really knows those young players. I also want to thank our other guests from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch analysts were Harold Nichols and Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse columnist this week. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon doing double duty. And our Master Notes commentator, as always, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some really great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy's research column on rebooting Lima. Dr. HQ Rick Wilton looks at the injury lessons we can learn from 2012. And Doug Dennis keeps slogging through the bullpens for the dog days. Plus, we'll have our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday, this week looking at left-right splits. I also hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Thanks again for listening. Remember to look at BaseballHQ.com for more information about First Pitch Arizona. You have till August 31st to get a discount on the registration fees. We'll be back again next week with Joe Sheehan on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.